Jeremiah 5. Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search her squares to see if you can find a man, one who does justice and seeks truth, that I may pardon her. Though we say, as the Lord lives, yet they swear falsely. O Lord, do not your eyes look for truth? You have struck them down, but they felt no anguish. You have consumed them, but they refused to take correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. Then I said, these are only the poor. They have no sense, for they do not know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. I will go to the great and will speak to them, for they know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. But they all alike had broken the yoke. They had burst the bonds. Therefore, a lion from the forest shall strike them down. A wolf from the desert shall devastate them. A leopard is watching their cities. Everyone who goes out of them shall be torn in pieces. Because their transgressions are many, their apostasies are great. How can I pardon you? Your children have forsaken me and have sworn by those who are no gods. When I fed them to the full, they committed adultery and trooped to the houses of whores. They were well-fed lusty stallions, each neighing for his neighbor's wife. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? Go up through her vine rows and destroy, but make not a full end. Strip away her branches, for they are not the Lord's. For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have been utterly treacherous to me, declares the Lord. They have spoken falsely of the Lord and have said, He will do nothing, no disaster will come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. The prophets will become wind, the word is not in them. Thus shall it be done to them. Therefore thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, Because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth of fire, and this people would, and the fire shall consume them. Behold, I am bringing against you a nation from afar, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It is an enduring nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. They quiver is like an open tomb. They are all mighty warriors. They shall eat up your harvest and your food. They shall eat up your sons and your daughters. They shall eat up your flocks and your herds. They shall eat up your vines and your fig trees, your fortified cities in which you trust. They shall beat down with a sword. But even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not make a full end of you. And when your people say, why has the Lord our God done all these things to us? You shall say to them, as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve foreigners in a land that is not yours. Declare this in the house of Jacob. Proclaim it in Judah. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble before me? I place the sand as the boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier that it cannot cross. Sorry, that it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and gone away. 
They do not say in their hearts, Let us fear the Lord our God, who gives the rain in its season, the autumn rain and the spring rain, and keeps for us the weeks appointed for the harvest. Your iniquities have turned these away, and your sins have kept good from you. For among wicked men are found for wicked men are found among my people, they lurk like fowlers lying in wait. They set a trap, they catch men. Like a cage full of birds, their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they have become great and rich. They have grown fat and sleek. They know no bounds of deeds in evil. They judge not with justice. They cause the, the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper, and they do not defend the rights of the needy. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on nations such as this? An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so. But what will you do when the end comes? This is the word of the Lord. Our Heavenly Father, please will you have mercy on us this morning. Give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see that we may turn to you and truly live. In Christ we pray. Amen. We've stepped out of Jeremiah for two weeks, and it's not an easy book, uh, so we probably need a refresher. The first thing we need to remind ourselves of is what Jeremiah actually is, the book of Jeremiah. Because it's not like a biography that tells a story sequentially, chronologically. It's more like a photo collage that tells the same story but in images that are randomly arranged and deliberately jumbled for effect. So more like a photo collage than a biography. In any passage in Jeremiah, it's not always exactly clear where you are in history. Uh, what is clear is the truth about God and the truth about humanity that the prophet brings. And of course, we do have a basic uh, historical framework we know that Jeremiah was born during the reign of King Manasseh. Manasseh, Kings tells us, the book of Kings tells us, did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. In fact, he was probably the most corrupt Judean king in a long line of corrupt Judean kings. He made alliances with foreign powers. He promoted the worship of foreign gods. He even set up altars to those gods inside the temple. I mean, consider the blasphemy. He burnt his own son as a sacrifice to one of those foreign gods inside the temple. His rule was oppressive. 2 Kings 21 says that the blood of his own people flowed from one end of Jerusalem to the other. And the same chapter concludes, Manasseh did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. He was followed by his son Amon, who, believe it or not, was even worse. And then came Josiah. Josiah was crowned in 640 BC, age 8. Uh, clearly the recruitment panel didn't put much stock in experience, but age 8 he was crowned, and he was a great reformer, a great reformer. He began his reforms when he was around, at age around 1920. Uh, he turned the people back to their God by purging the land of all this false worship, by tearing down the altars, by restoring the temple by renewing the covenant that God had made with his people through the prophet Moses. It was 627 BC, two years into that reform process, 
when God called Jeremiah to be his prophet. And he prophesied through the reforming reign of Josiah, and then on into the reigns of four lesser kings, the four kings who supervised the decline of Judah, that downward spiral all the way into exile, 587 B.C. During this time, the messiness of the local Judean politics was probably only matched by the messiness of international politics. You had uh, three bulls in one camp, Assyria, Egypt, Babylon, all fighting it out for superpower status. And if you actually look at a map, imagine one with me, uh, you're going to find that Judea is right in the middle of all this. So imagine Assyria and Babylon up here. Where's Egypt? Egypt is down here. Where's Judah? Right there. It's obvious that we're going to be caught in the crossfire. What's also obvious is that God's people, at a time of such turmoil and chaos, would need God to take back the veil, to show them and help them understand what was going on. And that's who Jeremiah is. He's God's appointed prophet. That's his mandate. But remember, it's more like a collage than it is like a timeline. What we have in Jeremiah 5 are three oracles. We don't know exactly when the prophet spoke these oracles. When you read the chapter, you get the idea that it was probably early on in Josiah's reform process uh, because it seems to have been before the first Babylonian invasion. But beyond that, we don't know too much. We can't be too specific. But as I said before, it doesn't really matter. Whatever the finer details of the historical context, Jeremiah is bringing us a timeless truth. In chapter 5. What you have in chapter 5 is a kind of a courtroom drama. It's got all the standard features of a good courtroom drama. In my day, it was LA Law, there's been Boston Legal, there's Suits, the list goes on and on. But you'll know, you'll recognize the four standard features the charge, the plea, the verdict, and the sentence. The charge, the plea, the verdict, and the sentence. So let's start with the charge. What's the charge? The summary charge is that Judah have broken the covenant that the Lord had made with the people through Moses. They'd broken the covenant. They are in breach of the covenant. That's the headline. But the charge sheet supporting that conclusion is as long as your arm. First charge, idolatry, verse 7. You're going to need your Bibles open at Jeremiah chapter 5. We're going to do some work. Idolatry, verse 7. Your children have forsaken me and have sworn by those who are not gods. Look at how he describes the people in verses 7 and 8. They are adulterers trooping to the whorehouses, falling over each other to get to the whorehouses. They are lusty stallions who must be satisfied at the first and nearest opportunity. And they're ungrateful. They betray the Lord even though he has kept them full and well fed. Next charge. Folly. Verse 21. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. They've become like the idols they worship. They're no more spiritually discerning than a block of wood. They can't hear the Lord's pleading. They can't see the warning signs. They can't discern the danger that's coming towards them. Next charge, irreverence and arrogance. 
Verse 22. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble before me? I place the sand as the boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and gone away. They do not say in their hearts, let us fear the Lord our God, who gives us rain in its season, the autumn rain and the spring rain, and keeps for us the weeks appointed for the harvest. Instead of fearing the Lord, they are worshipping Yam, the god of chaos, the god of the sea. They are worshipping Baal, the fertility god of the harvest. They broke all the bounds of the covenant, even though the ocean itself does not dare to break those bounds, to breach the bounds that the Lord has set for it. And the rains, they are his gift to give. Next charge. They are stubborn and rebellious. Verse 23 says it plainly. Verse 3 shows us just how stubborn. O Lord, you have struck them down, but they felt no anguish. You have consumed them, but they refuse to take correction. They have made their faces harder than rock, and they have refused to repent. Next charge. Fraud, greed, corruption, social injustice. Verses 26 to 28. For wicked men are found among my people. They set a trap. They catch men. They are motivated by money. Verse 27. Therefore, they have become great and rich. They have grown fat and sleek. And even though the ocean knows its bounds, verse 28 says, they know no bounds in deeds of evil. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper. They do not defend the rights of the needy. They share nothing of God's concern for the vulnerable. On the contrary, they exploit people and pervert justice to get rich. Final charge. All of this is done wearing the mask of religion. Verse 2. Though they say, as surely as the Lord lives, yet they swear falsely. They make a show of godliness, but clearly there's no love for God in their hearts. It's hypocrisy. That's the charge sheet. The summary is that Judah is in breach of the covenant in all of these ways. And so Jeremiah compares them to an unfaithful husband, a lusty stallion, and a poacher. How do we respond to that list? Let me rattle through it quickly with you. Judah has broken the covenant through idolatry, folly, irreverence and arrogance, stubborn rebellion, fraud, greed, corruption, social injustice, and religious hypocrisy. As I see it, we can respond in one of three ways. First, total indifference. Who cares? Second, we could condemn Judah for treating God that way. Third, we could blush with shame as we see ourselves everywhere on that list. Let me suggest that option three is the only real option. Indifference is very dangerous when the last words in this chapter are, what will you do when the end comes? 
Indifference is not an option I would recommend. Condemning Judah isn't really an option either because it falls at the last hurdle. Remember, the last charge is religious hypocrisy. The only way you can sustain self-righteous anger for another is if you yourself are not guilty. The truth is, if we're honest here this morning, the truth is option three. We are pretty much guilty of it all. And so we blush with shame. Let's take a closer look. What about idolatry? Well, we are lusty stallions. We have been well fed by our God. Countless mercies, countless blessings, but we are constantly hungry to worship elsewhere. And there's so many options. There's so many alternatives for our worship. We live in Midrand, so let's pick two of our favorites. Sex and money. This is how one commentator describes it. Sex and money. You don't have to look very far to see that we are in big trouble in both areas. Neither sex nor money can deliver the promises that we think they're making. And each area is more dangerous than we tend to think. Both have the perverse power to master your heart and in so doing determine the direction of your life. Both give you the buzz that you're in control, while at the very same time becoming the master that progressively chains you to their control. Both offer you the inner sense of well-being while having no capacity whatsoever to satisfy your heart. Both seduce you with the prospect of contentment-producing pleasure, but both leave you empty and craving more. Both sell you the lie that physical pleasure is the pathway to spiritual peace. Both are the work of the Creator's hands, but tend to promise you what only the Creator can deliver. Does that sound familiar? Idolatry. Guilty as charged. What about the kind of folly that knows no fear of the Lord and goes its own way in stubborn rebellion? Well, we see that in the church. We see it in the culture. In the church, we actually refuse to forgive each other. We cling to those grudges. We refuse to forgive one another despite what we've been forgiven. We are not generous with our time or our money. We would rather persist in this relationship or that relationship than be obedient to the Lord. And of course, stubborn rebellion is not confined to the church. It's a very human problem. Humanity has been rejecting God in every culture since the beginning of time. Listen to the godfather of materialism, Democritus, ancient Greek philosopher, pre-Socratic. This is an old lie. By convention, sweet is sweet. By convention, bitter is bitter. By convention, hot is hot. But in reality, there are atoms and void. And only the atoms and the void are real. See what he's saying? No God, no truth. The only thing real is matter. Right and wrong, they're just convention. That's all they are, a social construct. Fast forward a few millennia, and you have radio talk show hosts saying exactly the same thing. I recently heard one arguing in favor of adultery. More adultery. That's what he wants for our society. He basically argued sex is about convention. There's that word again. Conventions can and should be changed. And nothing's going to convince him otherwise. Nothing. You could point 
out the impacts of adultery and sexually transmitted diseases. You could point to broken homes, the pain of divorce, unwanted pregnancies. What difference does it make? No God, no truth. Right and wrong are just, they're just all about convention. So let's agree. Let's do it our way. Stubborn, stubborn rebellion. Guilty as charged. And finally, religious hypocrisy. This is the one that makes all the others infinitely worse. I saw a a billboard outside of a church once that read, This church is not full of hypocrites. There's always room for more. (laughs) And that just about sums it up, doesn't it? More times than I would like to admit to you, I've left this pulpit after having preached a sermon. I haven't made it to those doors before I flat out contradicted what I've just been saying here in my thoughts, my words, my deeds. If we are honest, my friends, we are constantly making a show of godliness when there's something else going on in our hearts. Karl Barth said, precisely because religion is the supreme possibility of all human possibilities, it becomes the working capital of sin. We put religious lipstick on the pig of our sin all the time. It's what we do. It's called hypocrisy. And Jesus hated hypocrisy. Guilty as charged. So Judah's charge sheet, I hope we can agree, is our charge sheet. What is Judah's plea? Well, Judah is a wily fox, a brilliant legal mind. They hedge their bets, and they offer both pleas. We are not guilty. We are guilty. It's a great strategy. First, not guilty. Verses 4 and 5. Jeremiah responds to the charges by arguing on Judah's behalf, but these are only the poor. They have no sense, for they do not know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. I will go to the great. I will speak to them, for they know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. Do you see his defense at this point? He's arguing that it's only the poor and the ignorant who are guilty. Socio-political and religious insiders, they know better. Plea, not guilty. Then there's the other plea offered in verse 12. This time it's guilty. The Lord will do nothing. No disaster will come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. Yes, we may be guilty of some of these charges, but the Lord will forgive. The court will have mercy. This is more than a guilty plea, isn't it? This, This is a demand for amnesty. It's presumption. We may be guilty, but we know someone in the Justice Department, and he's going to go easy on us. Those are Judah's pleas, and I think if we're honest, they are ours. When we are faced with the charge of sin, we tend to do one of two things. First strategy, we put humanity into two groups, the guilty and the not guilty. And of course, I decide who's who. I draw that line in the sand, and I just so happen to be on the right side of the line. 
I was talking to a man the other day who said, and I'm sure many of you have had conversations like this, he said, the great crisis in our society is that people don't have values. He said, I'm not religious, but I've, I've always lived by Christian values. And as he spoke more, what Christian values boiled down to was a good work ethic, having a good work ethic, and never admitting failure, refusing to give up. Now, do you see what we do? Because we, we're not any better than this man. We set up our own arbitrary standard, and then we declare ourselves not guilty by that standard. And the social and moral elites play this game better than anyone else. Good, middle-class people like you and me. My upbringing and my education mean that I live by a value, a value system. I am not guilty. It was John Locke who said, Of all the men we meet with, nine parts of ten are what they are, good or evil, useful or not, by their education. Really? Can you educate the sin out of someone? Is that our experience in this country? The educated are the ones who are not sinning? Is that so? It's a very popular idea in our culture. But it's not new. We need to recognize that. It is not a new idea. It's not as though human progress has finally brought us to the place, to the enlightened place where we now know the problem is not sin. The problem is ignorance. That's not a, despite what the world wants us to believe, that is not a new idea. All we're doing is dusting off a very old lie. John Locke was flogging this fable centuries ago. And Jeremiah fell into the same trap centuries before him. These are only the poor. I will go to the great. They will know the way of the Lord. We all do this. We put people into groups using education, social status, politics, some sort of moral code that we've constructed for ourselves, whatever arbitrary measure you like. The guilty are over there, and the not guilty are over here with me. But as a famous Russian once reminded us, the line between good and evil runs right through the heart of every single human being. So, we either plead not guilty on the basis of passing our own exam, or we demand an amnesty. That's the second strategy. God must forgive us, because that's his job, remember? His job is to love us, and that means looking the other way. Let's see how these pleas are received by the court. No surprises here. No twist in the tail, not yet anyway. The verdict is guilty, verse 11. For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have been utterly treacherous to me, declares the Lord. Guilty as charged. And the chapter opens and closes, book ends, with the fact that this guilt is universal. Jeremiah can wander the streets of Jerusalem, and what he's going to find, verse 5, is that they all alike have broken the yoke and burst the bonds of the covenant. There is, verse 30, a horrible and appalling conspiracy. The social and religious elite are peddling the lies of innocence and amnesty, the lie that all is well, peace, peace. Comfort, comfort, my people. 
And the people themselves, they are only too glad to hear what their itching ears want to hear. It's an appalling conspiracy. Verdict of the court, everyone is guilty. No one is righteous, not even one. The punishment fits the crime. The sentence comes in verses 15 to 17. Behold, I am bringing against you a nation from afar, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It is an enduring nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. Their quiver is like an open tomb. They are like mighty warriors. They shall eat up your harvest and your food. They shall eat up your sons and your daughters. They shall eat up your flocks and your herds. They shall eat up your vines and your fig trees. Your fortified cities in which you trust, they shall beat down with the sword. The Lord describes the coming judgment as a lion or a wolf or a leopard, crouching just outside, just beyond Jerusalem, waiting to pounce. It is disaster. It is famine. It is sword. It is a consuming fire. In verse 19, God says, If you want to serve foreign gods, I will give you what you want. Go and serve them in a foreign land. And the truth of Jeremiah chapter 5 is that this was no empty threat. In 587 BC, the Babylonian hordes came from the north. They demolished Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. They marched the survivors into exile. The last thing that King Zedekiah saw was his own sons being executed in front of him. Then they gouged out his eyes. They shackled him. And they dragged him to Babylon. Judah's death sentence was executed in full. And that's the end of our courtroom drama. Not quite. I did hint at a twist in the tale. We discover that twist by asking this question. Who exactly is on trial here? Judah, certainly that, that much is obvious. Us, I think we've made a case for that this morning. But that's not the whole story. Because when we look closely, we see that there's another defendant. In fact, the primary defendant, accused number one. What question is this passage actually trying to answer? Because as we've seen, as far as Judah's concerned, as far as we're concerned, it's an open and shut case. It's not really even a question. So what question is the passage trying to answer? The real question comes in verse 19. Why has the Lord our God done all these things to us? In Jeremiah 5, the Lord is the judge. And the Lord, through his prophet Jeremiah, is the prosecutor. But the Lord is also the defendant. The Lord is in the dock. The Lord is being put on trial by his own people. Why have you done these things to us? Why do you judge us in this way? We don't want a God of judgment. You know what the amazing thing about our God is? He actually condescends to answer those charges. Imagine you waltz into the Randberg Magistrates Court 
You've got a list, a list of misdemeanors as long as your arm. Proceedings begin, and uh, the court opens, and then you beat on the dock. He says, excuse me, what right do you, magistrate, what right do you have to judge me? How do you think that's going to play out? How much more should God Almighty be within his rights to declare us in contempt of court? But just look at how he responds, because that's not how he responds. Jeremiah chapter 5 verse 1. Listen to this. Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search her squares to see if you can find a man, one, just one who does justice and seeks truth, that I may pardon her. But there isn't one, of course. No one is righteous. Not even one. And so verse 7, how can I pardon you? Do you hear God's anguish? Do you see his dilemma? He desperately wants to pardon his people. There's no doubt about that. He says through Jeremiah's contemporary, the prophet Ezekiel, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked should turn from his way and live. God's heart is to forgive his people. But he also has to be true to who he is. Through his prophet Moses, he made the promise to bless them for righteousness, to curse them for wickedness. In order to bless and not to curse, there must be righteousness. But there is none. No one is righteous. Not even one. So how then does he pardon? Do you see his dilemma? Either he judges his people and is not merciful, or he pardons his people and is not just. How is he going to be true to himself, both merciful and just? Verse 10 gives us the beginnings of an answer. It says, go up through her vine rows and destroy, but make not a full end. In other words, bring judgment, but do not destroy them completely. Well, that's something, isn't it? I mean, that's something. Some justice, some mercy. But it's not quite a solution, is it? Because it's neither full justice nor full mercy. And on what basis does God spare a few? I mean, they're just as guilty as the rest, aren't they? To get the whole story, we need to read from another court transcript written 600 years later. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3, if you have a Bible here. Turn to Romans chapter 3. We'll read from verse 23. Romans chapter 3 from verse 23. Listen to this court transcript. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's your verdict. And are justified by his grace as a gift. There's your mercy. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Justice. To be received by faith. 
mercy. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, mercy, he passed over the former sins, the sins committed in Jeremiah's day. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, God is both just and the justifier. God is both perfectly just and perfectly merciful in Christ. If, if I had to put a title over Jeremiah 5, that would be it. God the just and the one who justifies. What does that mean for us? What does it mean that God is just? Let's, let's start there. What does it mean that God is just? Because many people don't like the idea of a just God, remember? God is loving. He's not judgmental. He's loving. Now here's the problem with that. We are actually hungry for justice. What are all the protests over the past month, what have they all been about, if not an expression of a deep hunger for justice? And here the problem compounds. The problem compounds because in our world there is so very little true justice. Jeremiah says it for us. Verse 28. They know no bounds in deeds of evil. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper. They do not defend the rights of the needy. If human justice is all there is, this life is a sick joke. Miroslav Wolf witnessed the horrors of the Balkan genocide firsthand. And he says it like this. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end to violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. In a world of violence, we are faced with an inescapable alternative, either God's violence or human violence. This will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. But it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocents, that thesis will invariably die. And as one watches it die, one will do well to reflect about many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. I think we understand what he's talking about. When we think about all the faceless, nameless Uyanenis, all the ones who didn't make it onto Facebook or News24 or Twitter or a placard outside of Parliament, when we think about them, brutalized, violated, murdered, but totally anonymous to our justice system, when we think about them, we praise God that he is just. When we think about Emmanuel Sotole, who was stabbed to death for having the wrong passport, we praise God that he is just. Quite frankly, liberal Christianity can keep its sentimental teddy bear God because we live in Africa and we are crying out for justice. 
God is just, and that gives us great comfort. At least for a while. At least for a while. But the longer we meditate on the justice of God, the more that comfort slowly, by degree, turns to anxiety and then to full-blown terror, especially when we read passages like Jeremiah 5 and we are confronted with the truth. There are not two groups of people, one guilty out there and one not guilty in here. No one is righteous. The line between good and evil runs through every single heart in this room. The line between good and evil is not between us and them. And that means that the horror of judgment that we read in the prophets is reserved for us. God the just is both a comfort and a terror. In terror, we flee from God the just to God the justifier. You see, God is the one who stands in the dock but not just to face the charges that we lay against him. He also stands there to face the charges that he lays against us. Jesus fulfills the covenant from both sides. He is the righteous man who walked the streets of Jerusalem, the only righteous man. In his perfect righteousness, he wins our covenant blessings and he quenches our covenant curses on that cross. The terrors that we read about in the prophets fell on him so that they don't have to fall on us. I think that's one of the great abiding values, the great blessings and privileges we have as Christians living today in reading the prophets. Because when we read them, we read those graphic horrors, those horrors in all their gory detail, the horrors of judgment, we realize this is what Jesus bore for us. This is what it looks like to be God forsaken. And we finally get a glimpse of the depth of his love for us. This is how much he loved us. In Christ, God stands in the dock for us to secure both justice and mercy. In Christ, God is both just and the one who justifies. And that has two final implications for us this morning, very quickly. First, as we go out into the world in just a few minutes' time, we don't have to choose between justice and mercy. We will pursue both. Our justice will be merciful and our mercy will be just. Our justice won't be harsh and self-righteous. And our mercy won't be naive, sentimental enabling. Because in Christ, God holds justice and mercy together. And we are his ambassadors. Second, and with this we close, where the passage closes. In Romans 3, it says, God is just and the justifier of who? Who does God justify? Who does God declare righteous? God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
my friends, no Jesus, no mercy. No Jesus, and all you have left is God the just. And you do not want to face him on your own. Because he will give you what you want. And that is the true hell. In the closing words of Jeremiah 5, what will you do when the end comes? Let's pray. Father, we cry out to you for justice. But the moment we do, we realize that we need to follow it with the cry for mercy. We thank you and we praise you that you found a way to punish sin and yet still embrace us as sinners and call us your sons and your daughters. And it's a free gift. Lord, we praise you. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the righteous one and the merciful one, King Jesus, a friend to sinners. Help us now, Lord, to honor him by acting justly and loving mercy and walking humbly with our God. Amen.